1: Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about the wealthy millionaire socialite Roberto Trojan, a gregarious, fun, and generous man, who, being gripped with grief and unable to cope, placed his life in the hands of someone he felt he could trust. And yet this greedy little man would bleed Roberto dry. Murder is researched, used in original sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 68, Roberto Troyan, Grief, Guilt and Greed. Today, I'm standing in Mount Street, W1. Three streets southwest of the shoe store where Sedu Dirasuba was stabbed to death, two streets east of the Intercontinental Hotel where exiled Iraqi Prime Minister Abd ar-Razak Said al-Naif was assassinated, one street south of the Millennium Hotel where former Russian spy Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned by incompetent KGB agents, and one street east of the cruel and painful abortion of Elsie Goldsmith. Coming soon, to Murder Mile. Mount Street is a pretentious little side street in the heart of the exclusive district of Mayfair. Enveloped by embassies, flanked by five-star hotels, peppered with millionaires' penthouses, and awash with tiny art galleries. All with no customers, only three pictures, and a zoned-out receptionist staring into space. Surrounded by half-empty stores, of designer this, exclusive that, and shapeless tat by names no one gives a shit about. On a street packed with Bentleys, Rolls Royces, Lambos, and even a bright gold smart car whose license plate is worth ten times more than the car itself. Mount Street is wealthy, but soulless, vacuous and dead. It's like a wannabe Rodeo drive, only with drizzle a stale Saint-Tropez, only with a sea of wigs, and with so many facelifts, it looks like every local has been caught in an icy breeze. Situated halfway along is a four-storey, red and brown brick building at 101 Mount Street. A pristine mansion block with 15 exclusive apartments, complete with a maid service and a concierge. And where the worst crime you can imagine happening Might revolve around a poodle's coiffeur, a pair of red trousers, and a deeply affronted man called Farquhar. And although each flat is worth £1.3 million, Flat 6 at 101 Mount Street was recently sold for a paltry £300,000. As it was here, on Friday the 8th of March 2013, Having seen that Roberto Troyan was grieving, a greedy financial advisor would take everything from his last penny to his final breath. Roberto was larger than life gregarious, funny, and astute. The kind of man where, once you met him, you could never forget him. And although he came from wealth, he was good decent and caring. Born in Italy in 1950, Roberto Charles Troyan was one of two children to Bob, a former US army officer who later made his money in shipping, and Marie, a doting mother, who he would never fail to call each and every day. And with his one sister, Rosalie, they both enjoyed a happy and loving upbringing. Raised in the US city of Boston, although Robert, as he preferred to be called, would retain a Bostonian twang to his voice throughout his life. Blessed with a flair for design and a deep love of Britain, having graduated from art school in 1983, Robert moved to London. But it wasn't just his sweet face, twinkling eyes, a mop of dyed red hair which made him stand out. As amongst his friends, it was his charm his kindness and his talent. And although his life was good, it wasn't complete. That same year, Robert met 30-year-old Anthony Feldman, a successful interior designer and architect from Johannesburg, with many high-profile commissions and celebrity clients. And being partners in work, having found true love together, Robert and Anthony became partners in life. As a couple, Robert and Anthony complemented each other beautifully. As with a passion for art and a love of antiques, they lived in a stylish penthouse apartment in Hartford Street, Mayfair, furnished with fine art, plush carpets, intricate figurines and a painting by Picasso. It was a perfect partnership with the fastidious and meticulous Antony in control of the food, the fun and the finances, and the gregarious Robert, like a beaming beacon of light, who made everyone who entered their home feel welcome and warm, bestowing upon them all hugs, compliments and kisses. Robert and Antony's lavish dinners were infamous, a veritable who's who of society, with Antony as the pianist, Robert as the raconteur, And the chilled champagne flowing freely. But being blessed with deep pockets and big hearts, they use their influence for good, raising funds for the homeless, the desperate, and the penniless. Being generous to everyone, whether celebrities, staff, or strangers. And although, being a big part of the social scene, they would holiday in a secluded cottage in Turkey. Robert only ever wanted to live in Mayfair, as here he felt safe. But sadly, this was not the case. Robert and Anthony were together for 22 years. They worked, ate and slept side by side, and being very much in love, they were inseparable. But as two gay men, although they lived together, The law didn't see them as a couple and denied them any rights. So when the Civil Partnership Act of 2004 was passed, Robert and Anthony made it official and announced their engagement. Robert was blissfully happy, hopelessly in love and soon to be married. As now, his life would be complete. Only fate can be cruel. In October 2005, a few months before their wedding, Anthony felt a few twinges in his muscles, which he brushed off as just a bad back. But as his health hastily deteriorated, upon seeing a doctor and getting some tests, Anthony was diagnosed with an aggressive form of pancreatic cancer. On the 10th of December 2005, Just five days after the law was passed, Robert and Anthony were married in a private ceremony in their Hereford Street flat. Eight days later, 52-year-old Anthony Feldman was dead. A memorial service was held at the nearby Grosvenor Chapel and amongst a chorus of joyous songs, in a sea of grieving faces, although Anthony was given the glorious send-off he truly deserved, being ashen-faced and distraught, Robert sobbed throughout and was barely able to stand. As with his husband gone, his love stolen and his heart broken, this larger-than-life character looked tiny and frail. And as the invite stopped, the party ceased and their friends drifted away. Robert was left alone. Their tiny, spacious apartment was now a hollow, joyless void. Their fine art, a painful reminder of 22 years together. Their many photos, like cruel glimpses back at happier times. And every old anecdote he once regaled his enraptured friends with, now lost, gone, and never to be told. And with his smell on the pillow, his clothes in the cupboard, and his shoes by the door, everything reminded him of Antony. As in the middle of their sumptuous suite, with his sweet smile sunken, his eyes red raw and his confidence crushed, Robert sat alone, as the walls which once rang with joyous laughter now echoed with his solitary tears. as the sole beneficiary of Antony's fortune. Legally being a widower, the civil partnership had ensured that Robert's financial future was secure. But physically and emotionally, he was bankrupt. So unable to escape the grief, which hung in their apartment like a dense cloud of gloom, Robert moved from their spacious penthouse on Hartford Street into the more modest flat 6 at 101 Mount Street. And even though he had moved, the pain remained as the grieving man struggled to cope. Anthony was his everything and without him, Robert was at a loss. So with restaurants nearby, Robert would often eat out. And with his flat in disarray, he hired a maid. But with Anthony gone, being gripped in grief, His spending spiralled out of control. Unable to find happiness, Robert shopped, but the art he brought only made him more miserable. Sometimes he parted, but the late nights left him with nothing but bar bills and hangovers. And as a kind and lovely man, he lavished his friends with gifts, but with no control, his life became a blur. Wildly spending to conceal his grief, Robert's life was spiralling out of control. He knew that, and with his bank account rapidly dwindling, he did the sensible thing and sought out an experienced and respected advisor to handle his millions in the bank. And his name was David Jeffs. Originally from Peterborough, In 2008, Robert was introduced to David Jeffs, a financial advisor for a wealth management firm with a solid reputation called HFM Columbus. David looked as you'd expect a financial advisor to look, as with short dark hair, thick rimless glasses and a boyishly smooth face. Unlike Robert, he didn't exude flamboyance, instead he was smart, quiet and bookish. In a crisp white shirt, a plain blue suit and brown suede shoes, although his style hinted at a man eager to break away from the stuffy demeanour of a chartered accountant, flourished in a Burberry scarf, tied in a way that GQ said was best, and clutching an old black leather briefcase with a brass clasp, not unlike something a Victorian doctor would carry. He hadn't got the personality. To pull the fashion off. His dress sense aside, 31 year old David Jeffs was experienced but unremarkable. Although recently divorced, he lived with his fiance and six year old son in a tidy house on a quiet cul de sac in the pleasant village of Arnold in Nottingham. He had a car, a garden, a steady career, earning him a decent salary of £53,000 a year. And as expected from a financial advisor, his life was modest, safe and good. Acting as his financial concierge, David started small by organising Robert's spending, sorting out his direct debits and streamlining his standing orders. With a sense of normality returning to his life and eager to ensure the longevity of his wealth, David invested £1.2 million of Robert's money into Royal Scandia Life Insurance, a very stable long-term investment. David Jeffs was a real straight arrow, dull but indispensable, rapid but invaluable, stayed but trusted. So much so that against the bank's wishes, Robert wrote David several blank cheques to invest. By 2010, grief had taken its toll on Robert, and although he dressed at Ralph Lauren, had his hair styled by John Frieda's, and ate at Scots of Mayfair, having contracted a debilitating skin disease, the steroids caused his weight to balloon being reliant on his maid to do his cooking, washing and cleaning. Having packed on several stone, she also had to support him as he walked from his flat to the ground floor. Robert was vulnerable, disabled and frail. An ailing man with an extravagant lifestyle, expensive tastes, a wild spending habit and an inexhaustible bank balance. And now he was dependent on others. By contrast, David Jeffs lived a modest life. One house, one car, one child and one girlfriend. With a nine-to-five job, working five days a week, with one holiday a year. And with his clothes by Marks and Spencers, his food by Asda, his art by Ikea, and occasional nights out at the flicks, there was no comparison. Dealing with the finances of the rich and famous, David wanted to live a life of luxury. But being an unimaginative and risk-averse man, already living beyond his modest means, with an ex-wife and a child to support, as well as several credit cards, loans and overdrafts, he knew that life was out of his reach. For David Jeffs, there would be no all-night parties, no stays in five-star hotels, and no tables at Michelin-starred restaurants. He would have no fleet of sports cars, no exotic holidays, and no celebrity friends, with no champagne, no caviar, no chauffeur, and no cocaine. He wanted the best, but the best he could achieve was mediocre. In comparison to Robert, David was nothing. And yet his client was rich, Vulnerable, grieving, and best of all, trusting. With complete control of Robert's bank account, over the next two years, David embarked on a shopping spree which would make a Saudi prince blush. He spent £1,100 at a VIP polo event, £1,200 at China White's nightclub, £1,400 on two rugby tickets, £19,500 in one night at the Spearmint Rhino lap dancing club quaffing £400 bottles of Cristal and treating himself to two Lotus sports cars for £72,500. And although this happened at the height of the recession, he claimed that his newfound good fortune was slowly down to sound financial investments. Being flush with cash, David holidayed in Las Vegas, Mauritius and Ibiza, dined out at London's most expensive hotels and restaurants, and in his modest home he amassed a huge collection of guitars. Using the blank cheques, David siphoned off £343,000 into his own account, lavishing his fiancé with a £15,000 wedding ceremony in October 2012 and just a few weeks before Robert's death, he used his ill-gotten gains to treat himself and his family to a trip to Centre Parks. David had bled his cash cow dry, but still he wanted more, as by February 2013, the financial advisor's life was a mess, as with barely £6 in his bank account and in debt to the taxman to £200,000, Robert's wealth wasn't just there to bail David out, but to cover his hopeless addiction to cocaine and ecstasy. In early March 2012, David cashed another blank cheque for £80,000. But this time, it bounced having confided to his mate, Davy Aganon of his fears about his dwindling bank account, his evasive financial advisor, and how he was unable to withdraw any cash. With a lease on his flat, up for renewal that week, Robert requested an urgent meeting with David, the very next day, at 3pm. Friday the 8th of March 2013 was a classic British weekday. The sun was absent, the sky was grey, and the gloomy grey streets were soaked in a persistent all-day drizzle. At 2.28pm, arriving a full 30 minutes too early, David Jeffs walked into the Oldley pub at 41 Mound Street, a few doors down from Robert's flat. Dressed in a crisp white shirt, a plain blue suit and brown suede shoes, with a brown Burberry scarf, his old battered briefcase and black leather gloves. Visibly pacing back and forth in the bar, David slugged back a stiff drink to steady his nerves, as not only would he need to explain the missing millions to Robert and the bank, but with nowhere to turn, as the broken hopeless drug addict shook, he knew his lies would be unravelled, the thief would be exposed, and the consequences for his job, his wife and his life would be huge. At two thirty-one PM, David called Robert's phone. As it often did, it went to voicemail. Hi, this is Robert. Leave a message. Robert, it's David. I'm a tad early. Uh, I pop by, but you're not in, so I'll try again in a bit. Cheers. Only this was a lie. He hadn't been to the flat. This was part of his alibi. A few minutes later, David called at 101 Mount Street. He pressed the doorbell to flat 6. The intercom crackled. He was buzzed in by Robert. And as the CCTV caught him enter the communal hall, behind him the brass-covered door closed, and he ascended the stairs, out of sight. At 2.45pm, Having spent less than 15 minutes in the building, David descended the stairs, alone. The CCTV recaptured him as he exited the street door and walked into Mount Street. At 2.57pm, he made another call to Robert's phone. Again it went to voicemail. Hi, this is Robert. Leave a message. Robert, it's David. I still can't get hold of you. I popped by, but got no reply. So, um, uh, let's rearrange, okay? Cheers. But again, this was a lie, and part of his alibi. Hopping into a taxi, David caught the 315 train from Waterloo and headed 45 minutes south to the suburban town of Guildford. The blackness of his gloves and the darkness of his blue suit disguising the oddly speckled stains which had splashed and splattered up his legs, arms and torso. At 5.36pm David entered a BP garage outside Woking. He brought twenty black bin bags, two packets of wet wipes, and spending ten minutes in the toilets, he exited dressed in a grey jumper, a light shirt, black trousers and carrying a half full bin bag. Later that day, having destroyed the blood-stained originals, he purchased an identical set of clothes. A white shirt, a blue suit, brown shoes and a brown Burberry scarf. And from there, he headed home to his wife and child, as if nothing had happened. But something had happened. At 3.57pm, Punctual as ever, Robert's faithful maid, Davy Aganon, opened the door to flat six. As always, she called out his name to let him know she was there. Robert! But oddly, for a man who was kind and polite, he didn't reply. And as a large and unsteady man, who needed her assistance to simply descend a flight of stairs, it was unusual for him not to be in. So with each room spotless, No sounds heard, nothing out of place and no sign of Robert, Davy began her regular duties. The kitchen was small and pokey, being barely seven feet deep by six feet wide, including the sink, the cooker and sides. It stood only two people at a push, and with no windows, one door and being set dead centre in the flat. Surrounded by three rooms, Outside of these walls, the room was soundless. As Davy entered the kitchenette, her path was blocked as the door was wedged. Being little, she pushed it hard, only it wouldn't budge. But through a crack, she saw on the floor a pair of legs slumped, still and silent. Concerned for her ailing employer, she called... Robert! You okay? But he didn't reply. And then she noticed the blood. Two builders working one floor above heard her screams. Racing downstairs, they barged the blocked door aside with brute force, shoving Robert's 20 stone bulk aside, only to see a scene of utter horror. having been attacked from behind whilst graciously making a cup of tea for himself and his guest. As a frail and disabled man who was barely able to stand, let alone defend himself from a frenzied and crazed assailant, Robert had been repeatedly battered about the head and face with such force and ferocity that based on his injuries, initially the police thought he had been shot unable to evade the rapid savage blows which repeatedly rained down on the grief-stricken man. With his killer blocking his only exit, Robert was beaten bloody by an addict with nothing more to gain and nothing left to lose. And as his last drop of life splattered up the shiny stainless steel surfaces, being barely conscious, blood pooled about his head as his killer fled. The paramedics were called, but having suffered several deep fractures to his skull, his left cheek, his jaw and his eye sockets, 63-year-old Roberto Charles Troyan was pronounced dead at the scene. Believing he had weaved an intricate alibi, David's web of lies were uncovered by a trail of bank statements, an addict's habit and several blank checks. And with his clothes and the murder weapon missing... His guilt was proved by a single drop of Robert's blood, found inside the one item which David had failed to destroy, his old black leather briefcase. On the twentieth of March 2013, 36-year-old David Jeffs was arrested and charged with murder. Being tried at Croydon Crown Court, the jury found him guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to serve a minimum of 24 years in prison with an additional six years for fraud. Robert was a good man, kind, loving, generous and gregarious. But grieving his lost love and struggling to cope as his health and his happiness was taken away, he placed his life in the hands of someone he felt he could trust, his financial advisor. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you're a murky miler, stay tuned for another thrilling installment of Extra Mile, where I may, if you're lucky, look out of my window and shout, oi, slow down, to a passing boat and grumble a bit about holiday boaters. But before that, here's my recommended podcast of the week. Hi. I'm Matt.
2: And I am Jesse. So like what is American Slacker, I guess, right? The highest amount of dick jokes per episode, per podcast. We've been on the air for 57 straight years. 57 straight years of dick jokes. Things constantly soaring over my head. And you pulling my chain. And your weekly weird news. We're also cannabis friendly. We kind of sneak it in there. Almost like you're lacing the brownies at the family reunion. It's the ride of your motherfucking life. Fucking 11. When there's only 10 on the dial. Weapons of mass destruction it's a threat to society food assaults yeah that happens too sometimes an ostrich took a lit match into a fireworks factory
1: <laughs> i don't even know where to go with that one
2: no that's our third story <laughs> oh my god america what are you doing So always someone dumb getting fucked over well you know they should have never gave raccoons rights, in my opinion <laughs> oh my god you can help us you can help everyone download our shit now We're second America! The neighborhood is unsafe, the streets, unlit. While others sleep soundly, you lie awake because you know the truth. You know that, no matter where you go, there's always a chance that a monster is in your midst. The darkness that runs deep within our own veins, the evil found in even the sweetest of souls, sometimes comes to light, and when it does, the result is a person that takes on that evil, that wears it proudly, and becomes part of the darkness itself. I am Aaron from Devil We Know Podcast, and on our true crime show, we dive into the scariest corners of our past and present to reveal the devil we know. A father, a mother, a brother, a sister, and anyone, anywhere, who hides in plain sight living a life of bloody secrets while living just next door. Come check us out and hear the chilling, true stories about the devils we know.
1: A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Jack Clark, Dominique Simpson, Kirsty Reynolds, James Rose, and Ben and Rosie from the They Walk Among Us podcast. And a huge thank you to Kirsty McPhee-Good and family who came on my Murder Mile walk recently and very kindly presented me with a rather lovely hand-painted Murder Mile flower pot full of tasty tea and cakey goodness. Yum. And also a quick hello to everyone I met at the London True Crime Meetups, which was hosted by They Walk Among Us and Generation Y Podcast. It gave me a great chance to meet and chat to some lovely listeners. Hello to you all as well as to Colleen from Misconduct, Paul from True Crime Enthusiast, Jess from Outlines, and Kate and Georgie from Nothing Rhymes With Murder. It was a great night. If you missed it, you were missed. Don't forget, if you want to see what the murder locations look like, on the day that each podcast is released, I upload a blog for that episode, with a map, location videos, photos, and much more. There's a link to each blog in the show notes. Murder Mal was research written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Boops of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
1: And that is that done. Good, that was good. That wasn't too bad. It's pissing down outside, so I was a little bit worried that... Because if there's trees over me, normally I hear... But it's, it's it's today is classic British drizzle day, which is great. So it's been really quiet, so you haven't really he- heard it. So that's really good. Right, it's me here. Hello, it's Michael. It's, it's extra mile time. Uh we're going to discuss if you're new to extra mile this is the extra bit afterwards if you if you notice it's it's, it's unscripted hence uh, blah 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 i can do all that uh, i'm going to tell you some stuff that you might not know about the case which oh, may not have gone in uh, i'm gonna uh, make myself a cup of tea very shortly although my my coffee's still warm i kind of powered through that recording how long did that take me it's quite quick actually it's quite quick. I think because I wrote it in a not a flowery way. So it was easy to, easy to write. I'm just going to open a window. It's not a hot day, but I just want to get a little bit of fresh air in. There we go. Oh Over the front door. That's better. Bit of fresh air. Lovely. Whoa. It was piddling down later on, earlier on, but now it's okay. Am I going to have a cake yet? No, I'm not. Although I have, I have to say, I just I think I just mentioned in that podcast that uh, Kirsty very kindly gave me that, that lovely hand, lovely, really nicely detailed hand-painted black flower pot with the the murder mile design on there. And it, I thought I thought it was a print because it looked so good, but then I realised it was hand painted. God, it looks really good. Even like the footprint, the footprint is really detailed. So, um, but yeah, I've uh, I've eaten most of the cakes already. I've got one cake to go. Oh, I I had the coconut one. Coco- it was coconut coated with a, a fruity filling which was really nice and then the next one was a marble cake which i annihilated and now i've got one left and I, i'm not too sure what, what 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 it is i'm looking forward that that will go by the end of the day trust me that will go <sighs> so how are you all are you all good you all good keep yourselves busy i think i think uh for most people i uh, see i don't know i don't have kids but apparently it's summer holidays I always thought summer holidays was the end of the month. I thought it was like end of the month, and then it was but apparently not. Apparently, it started already. I know that by the time you get this episode, this will be. You'll be like, "What's Michael talking about?" Because this episode goes out eighth of August. Yeah, but for me, what date is it now? This is eighteenth of July. Yeah, I'm way ahead. Uh, I'm trying to get myself ahead. Oh, next, uh, oh, see, I'm saying next week, but for you, it's already happened. I'm in the future. Uh, <laughs> don't ask me don't ask me what the lottery numbers are. Um so I'm yet to record them. What I was going to do I was going to record the Meandermile episodes. And then I was going to record this one. But when I went out on the... I went out into Soho to record the Meandermile episode with my kind of little digital recorder that I've got, which is very nice. It's a stereo recording. You can you can plop it down. It's got a windsock on it. And you can plop it down. And it picks up lots of sounds from different... Like, from really... It's it's great fun. I, I sometimes walk with it, my earplugs in, listening to it, because you can hear conversations, like, from way down the street. It's really powerful. But when I got there, I realised it's, it's great for distance and stereo but it's not good for picking up kind of mono tracks like so when I tried to I stood in the middle of Charing Cross Road trying to record an opening an intro to uh the first Meander Mile that you would have already heard but that's not the that's the version I'm going to do tomorrow um I couldn't pick up my audio well so I so I have had to buy myself a little clip mic a little lapel mic with a windsock on it so I can record with that. So we'll see how that goes. So hence, so I'm still yet to record record uh, the uh, what was it? Meander Soho, Meander Mile Covent Gun. They are written. I just haven't recorded them yet. Hopefully the weather will be nice tomorrow. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, and um, so this, yeah, this is uh, October August eighth. So why why did I get onto that? That's really weird. Why did I get onto that? Yeah. So this is what. Well, this goes out in three weeks time but if you're listening to it now it go, it, it, i recorded this three weeks ago unless you're listening to this in a year's time then this is all irrelevant so who cares um so uh what's going on right i'm here I'm just checking my time okay uh so that was episode 68 uh roberto Troyan, grief guilt and greed um I stumbled across this ages ago. This was obviously because I live in London. It was in the newspapers. It wasn't really covered a huge amount. Uh, what? I can't remember what had happened. Something was happening around that time. So it, it kind of got pushed away. And it was kind of, you know. <sighs> There's probably some terrorism going on or something like that. Something bad had probably happened. So it, I think it got washed under the carpet. I remember reading about it in the standard and going, oh, that's interesting. But by that point, I hadn't decided to set up Murder Mile. Murder mile wasn't something I was planning to do, so I just and I think by that point I'd I'd uh, stopped. Uh, oh yeah, I was about. I was just about to be made redundant. That's why I was focused elsewhere. I was thinking about what I was going to do with my life. That's why that was that's yeah that was uh, uh, 2013. Ooh, that was fun. So yeah, uh, so I wasn't really thinking about murder Mile, I wasn't really looking at stories. It was you know it wasn't even on my horizon. It was just something to read in the paper. I read it and went yeah there we go. Didn't really know much about it, but um, I think when I when I saw the photo of Roberto Troyan. And then I saw the photo of David Jess. You know, sometimes you make judgments about people when you look at them. I think instantly I kind of, whether it's the, the, what the press had chosen to choose as pictures, they'd chosen a really nice picture of Roberto where he looked smiley and he very cheerful and you know, looked like a really nice guy. And then uh, uh, if, you, if you go onto my website, the blog's out today. Go and have a look at it. The pictures are on there. Oh, no, it won't be on my blog because I can't... Oh. I can't copyright, I can't use it because it's, cause it's copywritten by one of the press organisations, so you'll have to go to either my Twitter account, I can use it, or or if you join the, the uh, Murder Mile Facebook group, the discussion group, I'll have the photo on there because I can legally put it on there, I can't put it on my website, it's confusing, don't ask me why. I once put some pictures which were copywritten, which I didn't know that, on my website, they were only tiny, uh, I used four of them, and I was charged £300 for those pictures. And then I looked at my blog and went, "Holy shit! I've got almost a thousand photos that I took off Google on there." So if you have a website and you've gone on Google and you've gone, "Oh yeah, I'll borrow that picture," don't, really don't. They're not yours. If you basically the rule is, if you don't own the copyright, you can't have it, you can't use it. There's a grey area at the moment that says uh, people are like, "Well, how can we put it on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook?" And there's a grey area at the moment. It's like they can't, they can't find you for it. Because if they find you for it, then they have to find Facebook and Twitter and, you know, they have to attack high and then they'll come down on you. So at the moment, it's a grey area. But if you own a website, if you've got a website or a blog, weirdly, the the rules are different for a blog. If you've got a blog and you're using pictures or music or footage that isn't yours, be very careful. You are in shit. I was in shit that one day when when they said you owe us £300 and I thought, well, this is a scam. And then I checked it out and I went, oh, shit, it's not a scam. And that was four photos, and they were tiny, and I barely used them. And it was just, I I had to go through my blog and rip all the pictures out. So, the... Uh, if, you, oh, oh, if you're on my um, what's it called, Patreon account they're on there as well, I post them very early because it's on Patreon I can get away with this, all the pictures that are on there are crime scene photos, well not crime scene photos uh, often crime scene photos, for this one uh, I've put all the, the CCTV pictures on there, there's quite a few that show uh, that show David Jeffs as he approaches uh, 101 Mount Street, as he's in the Audley pub just before he makes the call uh, there's another photo of him at the BP gauge just after he's got changed. There's another photo of him carrying the black carrier bag with the bloody clothes in it. Uh, so they're all on there. And, and as I was about to say, there are pictures of Roberto Trojan and David Jeffs. I, they won't be on my website. They'll be on the social media. But have a look at those. You can, you, you can, you, you can really see that Roberto looks like a really nice man. And apparently he really was as well. Whereas David Jeffs, you look at him and you go, he looks like a serial killer. He really does. If you kind of, He's got that kind of Dennis Nielsen quality about him. Uh, so have a look at those pictures. and uh, Yeah, that kind of summed it up. So actually, when I was going through <coughs> um, this story, I approached the story, I didn't know much about it except he was murdered and where the murder happened and the location still existed. But as I was going through it, it was really obvious of how to write this because obviously, even though Rob- Roberto was wealthy, really nice man, lots of good friends, people really liked him, uh his life got quite sad because you know he found, he found someone he loved then the, the law happened that said said okay now you can legally be married to this man and then he died five days later um in the press um this is why i hate using newspapers uh the press said that he was the uh the f- first couple they were the first couple to legally marry in london that's complete bullshit it was they were married five days later but they were one of the first but don't forget in those first first five days a lot of people did get married uh and rightly so so that was uh that story uh there's a couple of pieces that I didn't put in for time to be honest most of the information I put in um if you go on the website as well I have put this on my website because I can legally get around it um i took some photos outside the building and of the street there's a location video there as well uh, so you can see what the, what mount street looks like i obviously you can see the front door the glass fronted uh brass content- <gasps> Br- brass oh, i can't speak the door that's covered in brass say those bl- oh, i've been struggling to say words all day uh the brass fronted front door is there uh, i couldn't go inside obviously because it's a private residence but of the 15 flats that are there, number five was up for sale. This is number six, but number five was up, up for sale. And when I looked, they were identical. Uh, so there was a nice picture of uh, the front room, or as always they called it, the drawing room. Uh, so I, I've got that picture on there. So you can see the kind of size of it and uh, what it looks like. They're very luxurious flats. And also I put in there a layer to the flat. So you could see... Um, how it's shaped out there is kind of a, a the living room to the to the left uh to the top is like a second bedroom to the right is the main bedroom then there's a hallway and right in the middle is um a little kitchen and you can see the dimensions of the kitchen you can see where the door is you can see you know where the way everything's shaped so it kind of makes sense when you listen to the story uh but i i removed a couple of bits to do with the trial because i felt that we'd wrapped up the story enough but it there's more that kind of tells you a lot more about the kind of the the kind of the arrogance of david jeffs there's a there's real arrogance about him uh so he he pleaded not guilty to fraud and murder there were two charges on that um after his arrest, police d- discovered evidence that Jeffs had been taking ecstasy and cocaine and keeping the extent of his drug usage, usage from his wife. Uh, Jeff told police uh, that he was uh, Mr. Troyan's uh, £1,000 a week financial concierge. That's what he said he got paid, so that's £4,000 a month. And that he had been paid two years' salary in advance. Mm, chinny Recon, Chinny Recon, so that would be, what's the maths on that, Uh would be £100,000, is that right, yeah, £100,000, yeah, which still doesn't explain the £363,000 that he transferred from that account, and the uh, the two lotuses, and the holidays, but Passing sentence, Mr. Justice, Justice Rabinda Singh QC said Jeffs was a smooth smooth talker who creamed off his victim's savings to fund a greedy and extravagant lifestyle. Prosecutor Mr. Edward Brown QC told the defendant, you knew you killed Roberto Troyan and needed a new set of clothing. But Jeffs replied, that's not true. It was true. Um, he said, I never went into the flat. On that Friday, insisted Jeff's dismissing the suggestion, he looked more, dishe- more dishevelled on CCTV, which recorded him leaving the building. Jeff said, Except for my scarf not being tucked into my jacket, I'd say I look the same. Uh, and many times I felt the way, oh, yeah, uh, um, because he was being cross examined, uh, he said, many times I felt the entire weight to- of the Metropolitan Police Force is against me really (laughs) yeah it's the police's fault isn't it it's not your fault not your fault that you stole almost what was yeah roughly around half a million pounds from from what they could find so far this is just what's listed but you know we we don't actually know the full the full amount of what was taken out of Roberto's account uh asked why he lied to the police um this this I deliberately took out because it's slightly confusing. Asked why he lied to the police, Jeff said, I wanted to inv- to avoid a connection with... Sorry, that's a burpee. I wanted to avoid a connection with the man I met at Robert's place and all the madness that surrounded his life. Jeff's told the jury. There was a lot of discussion in the jury about um, Roberto's life about his um his many sexual partners, I know a lot of his friends online have have kind of said he never took cocaine but uh there's quite a few people he's there's quite a few people who said after his life started to collapse, he started to meet with people who who weren't the kind of the people he met with before the kind of the high profile is he he started meeting with a lot of people who were quite quite low rent. There's, there's some articles in there which says about this guy who we met, who was a who was a drug dealer, um, who's actually served time in prison. And so, yeah, it's it's hard to tell what's true and what's not true, really. Uh, but uh, David Jeffs actually, actually played on a lot of this during the trial. Um, according to Crown Court, uh, Prosecutor David Brown QC. Uh, hang on. Uh, where am I going? Yeah, we've done that. We've done that. Prosecutor said that Jeffs carried out a cold and calculated deception. As mentioned, Jeffs was uh, tried for uh, 24 years for murder and a further six for fraud to be served concurrently. Um, As he was taken away, he mouthed I love you to his wife, Sherry. Uh, Whether they're still together, we don't know. If she's got any sense, hopefully not. Uh, Now... As mentioned above, there was reference to a mystery man that was there. This was used a lot in the trial. I deliberately took this out, this episode, because it just throws it off. It just, you know... Uh, if this was a case about... Um, if this was a two-parter and we did one episode about, you know, what the trial said and then, then another one about the truth, we could do that. But this was just some, this, this was something that... Uh, David Jeffs and his lawyers were using as kind of, an, you know, as always happens, uses as an excuse, saying it wasn't me. It was a mystery man that no one knows and we, you can't find him and he's responsible. Uh, J- David Jeffs would later claim that a bloodstained mystery man had confronted him at Roberta Troyan's apartment when he arrived for the meeting. Uh, although there were no signs of forced entry at the ap- apartment uh, and no items of high value had been taken or touched uh the police <clears throat> he told the police there was no answer at mr Tryon's door but after the deceased's blood was found on his briefcase he claimed to have confronted on the landing he claimed to have had a confrontation on the landing with an ang- with an angry blood-stained mystery man in a desperate bid to explain away damning DNA evidence, Jeffs told the jury the man was probably a rent boy or an angry pimp. This was a plainly a. Uh, who said this? This was the. Uh, this was the Judge said. Uh, this was plainly a wholly false account. It was either invent. It was invented to cater for the blood that had come. It was invented to cater for the blood that had, in truth... I hate when people do add the words in truth in the middle of a sentence... uh, ...come from his own conflict with Mr. Trojan... ...and Mr. Trojan's wet blood during the attack. There we go. What else is there? Oh, uh, yes. So... What's missing from this story is the murder weapon. Obviously... uh, David Jeffs destroyed the clothes that he was wearing... Uh, but also, we don't know what the murder weapon is because that seems to have disappeared as well. It must have been in the uh, the bag that he was using, uh, the the black bin bag that he put his clothes in, and destroyed it when he got rid of the clothes. Or he may have destroyed it as he was leaving, as he was uh, in the taxi going to Waterloo, or on the train from Waterloo to Guildford. It's never been found, and the uh, pathologist was was unable to confirm what it was. Um. In the statement, it was said that uh, when Robert was found on the floor, there was kind of a tray found on his head, which was bloodstained as well, but the tray wasn't broken at all. So, it, And also, you know, it's a, a dinner tray. If it would have been used to batter him about the head, that would have been broken. Uh, but it wasn't broken at all. And they said that he was hit over the head with something that was heavy and blunt. Whether David Jeffs brought this with him... We don't know, it's still still a little bit sketchy in here whether this was a premeditated attack, whether he turned up that day and decided to do that. Which I still still find a little bit weird because if it wasn't premeditated, why would you make that call in advance and say, oh, I just tried to call for you, but you weren't in and turn up half an hour early. That, I would say, is premeditation. But in the court they had to say it was unsure whether it was premeditated or not. So whether he actually bought a weapon with him, we don't know um but if it wasn't let's assume we're gonna have to assume because we don't know what it is if it was something blunt and heavy and he hadn't brought it with him it must have been something that he grabbed in the kitchen because that's where they were they were in the kitchen when the attack happened so it must be something like a potato masher or a pan or a rolling pin or I think what else there is in the kitchen that would uh it can't be anything too big because he'd have to take it because he, he would have if it was big he would have left it with him so it'd have to be something easy to grab yeah must be something like that so i'm looking into my kitchen at the moment to see what else there is pan kettle you wouldn't use a kettle silly it'd have to you'd have to be a utensil wouldn't it so it's one of those one of those that he would have used as a uh as a murder weapon so there we go that was extra mile for today Hope you enjoyed that. It was a little bit shorter one than planned, because uh, <laughs> normally I sit there and I go, "Oh, well, I'll put all these details in. Uh, but we used all the details in the story, and then I don't really have much to say today, because uh, uh, I'm going to start editing this, and then uh, go into town, pick up my new microphone, so I can start recording the uh, the Meander Miles, And if they go well, we'll do those. But uh, so... You've got these. This is your episode 68. Uh, I've planned the next 10. So uh, they've all been researched. So I'm sitting down to do those. Uh, uh, so that will take... Where will that take us to? That will take us to kind of October-ish. Um, we, there There might be the, uh, the Meander Mile in Rye. I might do that uh, when I'm at the wedding. Uh, there might be another Meander Mile in Brighton I'm thinking about doing. So that will be October time as well uh then we will have a couple of episodes probably five or six of mini mile and then we will do the uh multi-part series uh and that will take us through till till the new year and then what i'm going to do in january i'm actually going to take january off i'm going to go and have a nice little bit of a holiday that'd be nice i'm thinking no one will be on holiday so i'm just going to disappear somewhere go somewhere cheap that'd be nice and then february get back into the archives and start all again so I'm looking forward to my holiday. I haven't had a holiday in five years. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, that was murder Mile, Extra Mile, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to have some tea. I'm going to have some cake. Life is good. Hope you're all well. Uh, be good. Speak to you soon. Tati bye.
2: Bye.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.